0: We're in chapter 9, verse 1, and one of the key, key, key passages in the flood is chapter 8, verse 1, when it says that God remembered Noah. That is the heart. That is the key to this, because that idea remembering, remember words have multiple meanings, not the first definition that usually pops into our head. So, by that, God's not saying, like, he completely forgot about this boat out there on the planet. He's like, oh my goodness, that's right. No one, his family. <laughs> remember means to honor your promise and put the fulfillment into action. So, it's not the idea that he forgot. It's kind of like when my girls, if they come to me and they say, hey, you said we could have ice cream. And I'm like, I remember. <laughs> I'm not saying like, oh my goodness, I remember. I'm saying I do remember, and now it's time to put in into action. And so that idea of remembering is God made a promise to Noah, and now it's time, now that everything is complete in the flood, it's time to put it into action, the fulfillment of that. And that is so key because this is the character of God. I mean, over and over and over again, I cannot emphasize enough how different Yahweh is in that sense, that he is the only only God that is a God who is completely transcendent and completely separate from all things, yet chooses to enter into history and our relationships in order to make covenants with us. There is no other God out there that makes covenants with humanity. There is no other being out there that really truly makes covenants. Um, There are a few gods that say, I promise, but a promise and a covenant are two completely different things. Promises aren't really binding yourself to somebody and then he's the only God that pursues us the only God pursues us even more screwing up and that's what we're seeing here is hopefully you're seeing that the sin nature of humanity is really messed up and, it, and if if Genesis, if the sons of God truly are angels then we have really my goodness that is messed up that humanity would go that far and yet despite that God pursues us God pursues us and I hope you keep seeing that theme of his faithfulness even when we are not faithful, as the book of 1 Timothy tells us. And so that's going to carry on throughout the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. So Noah gets off the boat. At the end of chapter 8 and verse 22, God says, While the earth continues to exist, planting time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. Well, let's back up. Chapter twenty. Chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an altar to Yahweh. He then took some of, the, of every kind of clean animal and clean burnt and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's a lot of animal sacrifices. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, even though the inclination of their minds is evil from childhood on. I will never again destroy everything that lives as I, just, as I have just done. He makes a sacrifice which becomes a pleasing aroma. And that aroma has the idea of the acceptance of the sacrifice and that God is now right with the people because the people are right with him now. And so then he makes this promise that he'll never wipe out the world again with a flood, which brings us into chapter 9 where God is going to make his second covenant with humanity, the Noahic covenant. And this is the second out of seven covenants with humanity. Then God bless... Verse 1 Noah and his sons said to them, Be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth with every living creature of the earth, and every bird of the sky will be terrified of you. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea are under your authority, and you may eat anything moving thing that lives. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. God starts his covenant by a first saying, Repeating the be fruitful, multiply. This shows that that still stands. And remember, this is a blessing and a commandment. The blessing is that we still get to be fruitful and multiply despite the fact that we're sinners and we deserve to die. But it's also a commandment to get the image out there and to keep expanding the garden. So he reinitiates, or not reinitiates, but re-iterates um, that point. And then he goes on and says, the language is difficult here, but it has more the idea that we've lost our right to rule and subdue. He doesn't exactly tell us to rule and subdue the planet. He mostly says all the animals are going to fear you. There's not a sense of us having authority over the animal world and we telling what to do and then they obey us. There's more of this sense that they fear us. Once again, if you ever want a reminder that you've lost your right to rule and subdue, tell your cat to come here and or walk right up to a line and and jump on its back for a ride. I mean. There are so many things that have shown us in our creation that we've lost this right. And so now the animal world is going to fear us. It's going to fear us. So the second commandment that he then gives in the Noahic covenant is, but you must not eat meat, which is life. He gives us the ability to eat meat, um, which remember may not necessarily mean that we now have the right to eat meat, but just that he's just now specifically offering that to us because obviously there have been sacrifices before this and that means people had to eat meat because that was part that's an unnecessary part of a sacrifice but you're not allowed to eat meat with the blood still in it now there's a couple reasons for that one this is just really unsanitary (laughs) there's a lot of blood-borne diseases in blood and yes, I know there's things that we can do with blood now to make it safe and that kind of stuff. But not back then. Not back then. And even now, if you go to Red Cross, like, my wife is blacklisted from giving blood because she used to live in Germany during the whole mad cow disease time period. And and they don't want to take risks. So that says that there's even things that they can't do with that. And, and we have screening processes and stuff like that. They don't. So part of this is just a health thing. Like, just... Drinking blood is just not good. Now, this doesn't mean that like if you still have a little blood left in your hamburger or your steak, like, oh my gosh, you're violating the Noahic Covenant and got you under judgment. That's, I mean, I still wouldn't recommend that necessarily. Hamburger blood is different than steak blood. But this, don't take it so legalistically that you live in this fear now. But the other reason, and this is the main reason, is that blood is sacred. And this is the idea where we um, blood, remember, does not it's not the blood that atones for your sins. It's not the blood that covers you. It's the fact that blood is a physical evidence of life. It is the most physical evidence of life. It's a symbol of life. And so because of that, blood represents life. And here's what you're doing. You're taking the blood, which represents your atonement, that you're being made right with God again, which is a very sacred, holy thing. And now you're treating that blood as something that is common. And now it just becomes something that you drink. And not necessarily that's a sin in itself, but, that you, but the sin is not necessarily just the drinking blood, as opposed to other things that are okay, but that you are taking something incredibly sacred, very sacred, that represents atonement. And now you're just treating it as, well, this is just my favorite drink. And if you do that enough, I think you guys know that if you treat something common enough and you do it enough times, then when it comes to doing something special with that, it doesn't feel special anymore. And, and I think that's even the tension with the Lord's Supper. When you do communion as a church, we're told to do this often in remembrance of me. And there's a sense that that means we should do it often on a regular basis But there's also this sense where as humans, not because it's God's fault, not because God didn't pick a good way to communicate this. It's just as humans, if we do it almost every week or several times a week, then that specialness kind of just kind of disappears after a while. Like the paintings in your house that you don't really notice anymore because they've been there for so long. And so there is something to this balance between doing it frequently that it doesn't get lost, but not so frequently that the specialness and the sacredness Gets lost as well. And that's a very specific reason why God says this just can't be a food item to you because this is sacred and it will always be sacred. The other reason is this blood was often used to gain power. I mean, even today, if you go into voodoo cultures in Haiti and South Africa and that kind of stuff, there's, and if you go to China and there's lots of places where they still drink blood thinking that they're going to gain the power or the life of that person that they're drinking the blood from, or the animal. And that they'll gain knowledge that that person has, they'll extend their life if they do that, they'll, they'll increase their ability to have children if they drink it, or they'll just gain power. And that's a very occultic thing. One, this is what God is saying, if you're drinking the blood to gain power, here is the, the total contradiction of it all. The reason that you need an innocent life to atone for your sins is because you declared yourself autonomous from God. You decided that you were gonna say this is right and even though God says wrong, and I want to do what I want to do, which basically comes down to control, wanting control. Then God gives you the blood to atone for your sin of constantly wanting to be autonomous and in control and empower everything, but then you turn around and drink the blood to gain more power over things. And so now you're not just treating something that is sacred in a common way. Now you're using the blood in a totally contradictory, abusive way of what the blood was intentionally meant to be as a sacrifice. Does that make sense? And there might be many more reasons, but those are three main ones that just really stick out as you go through the rest of the Bible and see this constant theme of the blood and the atonement. And so the idea is, this isn't for you. Out of all the things in creation, this is not for you. Because what blood now has to be, and a sacrifice. And so this is commandment. He then goes on to the third commandment and says, you should not murder. Now this one's kind of obvious. That was probably already there before the Noahic Covenant. But now he gives a specific act of judgment. That one, the reason you shouldn't murder is because this person is made in the image of God. So murder becomes very wrong in two major ways. One, the person that God has given life to, you've now decided that they don't deserve life. And so you say, God, you're wrong. They should be dead. Therefore, you are declaring autonomy by doing what is outside the will of God. But the second major reason is this person was made in the image of God to reflect God, to expand the kingdom of God. So when you attack the image, you're attacking God. And you're killing, for lack of a better word, God, so to speak. You're not literally killing God, but in your mind, that's what you're going for. Because this is the thing that's meant to expand the kingdom of God, and you're destroying a tool that God has implemented to expand the kingdom of God. And not just a tool, the apex of all creation the greatest tool that God created to expand the garden. And so you're not only putting yourself above God by removing their life, not only are you taking life from one of his children, but you're also hindering the kingdom of God from being expanded because all you care about is expanding your kingdom instead of God's. And so this is a gross violation of the most precious thing that God has created. Therefore, you lose the right to live. And that's the punishment. And knows that the punishments for any man or any animal that takes the life of another human must be put to death. And the idea is if you think that it's okay to destroy the image of God and to hinder that, then you have no right to stand anymore on that idea. Now remember, I know that the whole capital punishment debate is thick in America, but the reality is if God is the creator of all things, And he created the land, and he created humans, and he put humans in the land. He has the right to remove them from the land. And one, two, we must not think of death as the end of all things, because it's not. That's an atheistic view. There is so much more to what God is doing than just our immediate perspective, And whatever loss you think you're mourning in that person's death is nothing compared to the loss that God is mourning and the fact that this person is so evil that he had to strike them down, the very person that he's willing to die for. You must understand that that may not fit well in our Americanism, but that's pretty much the only place that doesn't fit well in Europe and America. You go to a lot of countries, capital punishment is still very much in force, and you ask most everyday normal citizens, and they'll say, yeah, we're all for it. It's a very uncommon thing to be against it. Not that I want to start that debate. So, so this is the commands that he gives here. So these are the, these are the conditions of the Noah Covenant. But what's interesting is he never says, if you, then I will. Which means even though these are requirements of the Noah Covenant, this covenant is unconditional. And it will stand for all eternity whether we violate it or not. Because lots of people have drank blood. Lots of people have murdered. Lots of people refuse to be fruitful and multiply. Not in a, just because not having kids is a bad thing, but because you made an intentional choice to say, forget God, I'm not going to have kids or whatever. And yet we're still under the Noah Covenant. It still stands to this day. Which also means that capital punishment still stands to this day as well. Now, what that looks like in a government in our nation, I think that's a completely different issue. Okay, how that's executed, that's a bigger debate in the light of Romans. Um, but obviously, that still stands. So, this is the covenant that he makes with them. Verse 8, God said to Noah and his sons, look, I now confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, including the birds, the domestic animals, every living creature, the earth with you and those who came out of the ark. Once again, notice the importance that he gives animals. He's making this covenant with animals as well. Okay. Now remember, this is not a animals except Jesus Christ and go to heaven covenant, but this is a binding promise that God is making. I confirm my covenant. Never again will a living thing be wiped out by the waters of the flood. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Now remember, as you probably have already heard, upteen times is that God never promises not to wipe out the world in many other ways. But there's only two times that God is ever going to wipe out the world, in the flood and then when the Son of Man comes back, which that's a much bigger complicated issue. So then he goes on, verse 12, it says, God says, this is the guarantee of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature, with you a covenant for all subsequent generations. This is a covenant that goes on generation after generation. I will place my rainbow in the clouds, and it will become a guarantee of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, this is cool because the word here is not just rainbow. The word here, the the Hebrew word here, rainbow, can also be turned... Translate as a covenant, which is the double use of the word. This is the sign, the rainbow of my covenant covenant. Okay. So the sign of the covenant is a covenant, but the rainbow also can be translated battle bow. Battle bow is the bow and arrows that you use to attack people and fight war. Well, Why is that the sign of a covenant? Because the idea is this, God is light. We already know that. And then whenever you see God in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and Revelation, <clears throat> he's always portrayed as light coming out of him and that kind of stuff. But if you pay attention closely, we have this image of white light coming out of him. We're told in those passages that every color of the rainbow or the spectrum or the prism is coming out of God, which fits into the rainbow. And so if God is light, then it makes sense that his tools, his instruments are also light. And if he has every color of the prism coming out of him, then his tools would also be every color. Now, this is significant because a rainbow curves upward, which means it's facing up because if a bow curves towards you, it means that they don't like you and they're about ready to do something damaging to you. But the only time you ever see a bow and arrow curved upward is when somebody has hung it on their wall and they no longer are using it. And the idea is God is taking his weapon of destruction and he's hanging it in the sky showing that he's at peace with us. And so every time you see the rainbow after the rains, which the rains might make you think, oh, it's going to flood again. Not less so for us after thousands of years, but I guarantee you that next time it rains, (laughs) there's going to be a whole lot of like, oh, is God serious about his promise? But when that rainbow comes out, it's the hope after the fear of the judgment. And so it's a constant reminder of that promise that God has made, that he's at peace with us. And so this is where it becomes very cool. It's not just a rainbow, it's a covenant. It's the battle bow, and it's hung up in the sky at peace. And so this is the covenant that he makes with humanity. But this is not where the Noah story ends. Now this is where the Sunday school, where we learn about the story ends, because the next part kind of gets a little weird. So the point is that God, Abraham, or sorry, Noah is a man of faith. He has been obedient to God. God has honored the covenant. Yay, everything is really good now. Until we get to verse 18 the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, Ham, the father of Canaan, these were the sons of Noah, and from the whole earth was populated. Noah, man of the soil, began to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he got drunk and uncovered himself inside the tent. He's a man of the soil, which takes you back to the Garden of Eden. So there's a, there's, there's a parallel here. He wants, God wants you to see this recreation of the earth through the, 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 the flood disappearing, just like Genesis 1. Then knowing the animals get off the boat and they step into the garden, just like in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Noah is called a man of the soil, just like Adam is taken out of the soil. And so he is constantly being lifted up as the second Adam. And the narrator is making intentional parallel connections between that and this because he wants you to see a clean slate. He wants you to see God starting all over with the garden. He's a man of the soil. He built a vineyard. He's expanding. He's guarding. He's keeping. He's tilling. He's working. This is, yay, finally, uh, the second Adam, and he's getting it right until he has his own fall, so to speak, just like Adam did. And his fall is he gets drunk off the wine, and then he gets naked. Now, before you think, well, okay, he just got a little drunk, you need to realize he got so drunk. He got naked, Okay, I mean, I know a lot of people have gotten drunk, but very rarely do people get so drunk that they strip all their clothes off. And you also have to realize that maybe that wouldn't seem so bad in our day and age with all of our movies and that kind of stuff. But back then, for a male to expose even his legs was considered sexually scandalous, let alone derobing completely um, before his family. Not literally before his family, but within that communal living. And so this shows a great, great, great fall. And at this point, God is saying, look, this is what humanity will always end up doing. This is what humanity will always end up doing, no matter how good you think it gets. With a clean slate, with a new covenant, with a fresh start, man will always def- default back to that. And it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for him to do that. Now what happens is one son, Ham, walks in and sees his father naked. And he comes out, and he begins to mock his father. Now, some people have suggested that Ham had a homosexual experience with his father because they're like, because we don't get how degrading that would be. We're like, oh, you saw your dad naked. What's the big deal? Why would God judge you for that? Why would would Noah judge him for that? But back then, that's a whole different kind of a thing. So they immediately read into it and try to make it even like sicker and more scandalous than it ever was. But the idea is the sun comes out and to dishonor your parents is taken very seriously in the ancient world, so seriously that they would stone you. Then to come out and see your father naked, to come out and tell your other brothers about them, to try to get them to join in seeing it, to mock him and make fun of him and make a big deal of it, that's incredibly disrespectful. And even today, if our kids did that to us, we would take great, great, great offense to that and be very deeply hurt. Like, how did my kid turn out to be this kind of person who's willing to make fun of me? And my fallenness and my nakedness. And want to share it with everybody else. Let alone in a culture where the patriarch is the king. And that this is even more scandalous than it is even today. And to disrespect your parents is even more scandalous than it is today. Because we make commercials about how cool it is to make fun of your parents. And so the reality is, this is incredibly disrespectful. This is one of the worst sins you can commit. is the lack of love, the lack of hospitality, the lack of respect his father. So he goes out and he tells his other brothers and knows that they react differently. They pick up a blanket and without looking, they back into the tent and cover him with a blanket. This also suggests that there's no homosexuality involved because if all that is necessary to to fix the sin is to cover Noah, then that suggests that's the only sin that has happened. If there's something more going on, then covering him with a blanket would not have been sufficient to rectify or reconcile the sin that Ham had committed. And so they cover his nakedness. So this shows that the two sons are more righteous, and more honoring than the other son, which takes us right back to the Adam parallel, where one son is turning out to be more righteous than the other son. And not just one, Abel and Seth are seen as more righteous than Cain. So we have those three sons again, where one is not righteous. And God is trying to just say, the, this is the point. This will happen every single generation. Every generation will have God's covenant redemption, and every generation will violate this with their sin, because this is what humanity does. And just like God puts a judgment on Adam and Eve, so Noah turns around and puts a judgment on his son. And so this is paralleling that Adam's story completely. And so he says in verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves. He who will be to his brothers. He also said, Worthy of praise is Yahweh, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth's territory and numbers. May he live with the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. The entire lifetime of Noah was 950 years. And then he died. Now, He curses him and says, you're going to be a servant. You're going to be judged and cursed, meaning that God has backed off of you. This explains because Ham is going to have a son by the name of Canaan. And Canaan is going to become the father of the Canaanites. Now remember, this is teleology. Teleology is trying to explain why things and people are the way that they are today. More specifically today for the people who are originally reading this book. And so this is what they're to explain. This is why the Canaanites are the way that they are. As you go into the promised land, this is what they're going to be like. And this is why you're just stay away from them. Because they come from Canaan, who came from Ham, who did this. Now, do not take this. A lot of times, once again, I mentioned this chapter 3. We think that when God judges somebody, he's making this happen to them. So when God says, um, you're going to have hostility between your spouse... We think God's making that happen. And then God turns around and has a, says, have a good marriage. Well, it's kind of hard, God, when you're making us not have a good marriage. That's not the point. The point is sometimes God does step in and say, I'm going to make this happen. But a lot of times God is saying, this is judgment. And judgment's when God backs off. God no longer protects you. God no longer guides you in a certain area because this is going to be the natural consequences. So the reality is, if Ham is this kind of a guy and he does not repent, he's going to raise his kids that way. And then they're going to raise their kids that way. And then they're going to live in a community because everybody was very familial and very tribal. And they're going to live in a community where everybody is like that. And then there's going to be this pattern, a generational sin, that's going to happen that nobody's going to even know how to get out of because nobody knows anything better because nobody knows anybody that's doing anything different. And then when you become an entire nation... There's no way you can get out of that. And some of you have encountered that with people who have generational. They come from neighborhoods where they've never seen anything else. And without another example of a different life or without the Holy Spirit, we barely can get out of repetitious sin when we have the Holy Spirit and know the Word of God, let alone when we've never seen an example and we don't have the Word of God and we don't have this Holy Spirit. So the idea is. Like father, like son, over and over and over again until we spiral down. And so this is more saying, this is what's going to happen, Ham. If you don't change your ways, which he won't, this is what the Canaanites are going to become. And so it explains to the Jews, this is why you stay away from them. This is where it all began. If you think this is bad, which they would, they would be horrified by this. Even though we mean like, eh, I don't know, I still don't quite get it. Which we do, but at the same time, it's not as shocking to us as it would be to them. What we have now is humanity is right back where they were at the end of chapter 3 and 4. So the question that you then begin to ask is, are we going to escalate to the point where we were in chapter 6 again? And the answer is, yeah, to a certain degree, yes. Will that specific sin happen again? Don't know. Probably not. But will their hearts be so evil that they'd be willing to do that? Yes. Will it be so universal? I don't know. And that brings us to the Tower of Babel.